First John is where we're going to be at today. As I was coming in in the back just then, uh, Dustin first told me to take a deep breath and to relax. It's been one of those mornings all over the place. And then Dustin reminded me that right there, what we just saw, is what it's all about. Amen? I mean, isn't that why we do what we do? First John is where we are diving in this morning. Chapter 2. We're going to work through this entire chapter today. A uh, little update from last week. I uh, had the opportunity to speak at the church where I was once a youth pastor. I uh, spent five years there. The senior pastor came here. If you were had the opportunity to be here with Pastor Richard last week. Uh, by the way, Pastor Richard said you guys were amazing, warm, welcoming, and uh, it was just really good to hear. Um, and it was... It was uh, a, a privilege and an honor to be able to go back to the church that I uh, once was a youth pastor. I was there at 22 years old, a snotty, runny-nosed 22-year-old, right? And uh, they gave me the opportunity to, uh, to grow, uh, to experiment, to, to fail, to mess up, to, to try new things. And uh, in many ways, uh, the fruit of my time there is... is uh, coming out here through, uh, through this new ministry, a, in, in many ways a daughter of, of that church. And so I just want to say uh, uh, very much uh, gratitude for, for the church there on the Eastern Shore and so thankful as I was there and just talking about you guys and what God's doing here in this midst. Just so thankful for you guys, uh, for this community to, to journey with and to uh, to. To, to experiment and to see what, what God can do through us in this city. Let's go ahead and read 1 John chapter 2, um, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dig on into it. I'm going to read the entire chapter. 1 John, if you're new to the Bible, it's toward the back. If you go all the way to the back, you're going to find Revelation. Just go to the left a little bit, and you will find the letter of 1 John. Follow along with me as I read. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his commandments in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is, that, is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, 
because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this opportunity to, to dive into this, this chapter from this, this letter from John. God, as we, as we understand that, that these words have power through your Spirit moving in our hearts to point us first and foremost to Christ, to draw out our need for Christ, our need for the Savior, our need for our sins to be forgiven, to open our eyes to the fact that we so often fail to walk in the ways that Christ walked. To open our eyes to the fact that it's, it's possible that if we, if we continue walking in a way that doesn't look or anything like, like the way of Christ, that we may not actually have Your Spirit in us. God, give us great humility as we look into this. I pray that we won't go into this with a defensive posture, but we'll We'll listen to your word. I pray that your word will be our place of authority this morning. And God, we pray that you just shower us in grace and that you remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. How do you know that you know God? I wonder how you would answer that this morning. How do you know that you know God? That's the question that John, right here in chapter 2 of 1 John, is seeking to answer. And you probably noticed that during our baptism testimonies, as each one of these guys was sharing how they came to know the gospel, how they became a Christian, they didn't just simply talk about how they came to know God in general, but they specifically talked about how they came to know Christ. Their story of of how they came to understand that Christ, in fact, was the fullest manifestation of God. Their story of how they they became aware of their sins and they saw Christ as the answer, the, the, the Savior, the one that they have been looking for. I ask a lot of people as a pastor how they came, became a Christian. And it's sometimes astonishing how many people can actually share their testimony of how they became a Christian. And for the most part, it's pretty good. They might talk about sin. They might talk about how they came to know God, came to love God. But what's astonishing is how, how many can share their entire testimony and never once mention the name of Jesus. It's almost as if the only thing missing from your testimony was the only thing that can actually save you. The only reason you would have a testimony period is, is because of Jesus. Because God, that Christmas day in Bethlehem, became flesh and dwelt among us. God was manifested in this world and he went to the cross and he took our sins upon him and he died and he rose again to new life, that is the only reason we have a testimony. And I wonder yourself, if you would, on average, when someone asks you how how you became a Christian, is Jesus part of your story? What we see here in 1 John, uh, toward the end of this this chapter, he gets into this this talk of like it being the last hour and, and the Antichrist, right there in verse 18, if you look with me. He says, children, it is the last hour. By the way, let's just pause right there. Anybody who who uses this text or any text like it to prove that Jesus is returning within the next couple weeks or a couple months or even a couple years has to remember that it's been the last hour for 2,000 years, all right? And it very well could be the last hour for another 2,000 years. I don't know. We don't know when Christ will return. But what the last hour is referring to is this this final stage, this last stage in the redemptive history of of God, of mankind. So this this final stage that began with God coming into this world as Christ and then culminating with His second return in triumph as Christ comes back to this earth as the King to rule and to reign. So that is the last hour, this final stage of God's redemptive plan. And John John is saying... We have to remember that we're in this last hour, this last stage of God's redemptive history. And he says, as you have heard that, ant- that the Antichrist is coming, he says, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, know that this is the final, the last hour. They went out from us, he says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. What he's saying is that there were these people who were once of us. They were 
They, they, they claimed to love God. They claimed to be spiritual. They worshiped with us. They sang with us. They sat with us. Uh, but he said they've, they've gone out from us so that we know they're not part of us. What he's referring to is this a movement of people, not just people who are ignoring Jesus in their testimony and give lip service to him in other, some other ways, but he's actually referring to this movement within the early church of people who were part of the church. They, were, they, they considered themselves a Christian, if you would. They, they called themselves believers. They, they believed they, that they loved God. They, they talked about God. They believed themselves to be very spiritual people, yet they denied, he said, that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was chosen to come into this world, the, 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 the suffering lamb that hung on that cross for the redemption of our sins. These people who were against Christ. And look how John handles this in verse 23 with me. He says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. No one who denies the Son then has the Father. Tim Keller t- talks about in his, in his book, Reason for God, uh, a time when he was invited to be a, uh, on a panel, a, a uh, panel with, with different religions that was going to discuss their religions, similarities, and differences. And so Keller was invited to be the Christian representative on this panel. And he said as they got to this panel, they sat around and, and there was their, uh, a Christian pastor, Keller, there was a Muslim imam, and there was a uh, Jewish rabbi. And he said as we shared, there were many things that we uh, disagreed on, talking about the differences in our faith. He said, but there was one thing that we all agreed on, one statement that we all agreed on, and it was this. If Christians are right, and Jesus is in fact God, then Jews and Muslims fail to love God in a serious way. And then reversed. If Christians are wrong, and Jesus is not God, then Christians fail to love God in a serious way. It makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus was in fact God, and we deny him as the Christ, we deny him as the Messiah, as the God incarnate, the manifestation of God, if we deny Jesus in that sense, and he is in fact God, then are we truly loving God? We're good. Oh, okay. We'll talk afterwards. Have them come up afterwards. Little meeting. We're good. If Jesus, in fact, was not God, and we, as Christians, are looking at the Bible, and we, and we believe that he's God, and, and we're worshiping them, him as God, and he's not, then, guys, you have to understand that we are failing to love God. Do you see what we're, where, how we're holding Christ up? I mean, do you see how we're putting our entire faith onto Christ? Meaning, if we're wrong then we're not actually loving God. And so this panel then of these different religious leaders, they all agreed that it's impossible to say that every one of us loves God. It's impossible. Because if Jesus actually came as a, or if God came as a human, manifested himself among us, died on the cross for, if it's all true, and we're failing to acknowledge him 
as God, then we are not actually loving God and vice versa. I have friends of different religions, and there are times that I'm like, I'm tempted to, to, to say, I want to at times say, look, we all worship the same God. Like, I hear you pray, I hear you talk about worship, I hear you talk about your dedication and your love for God. I don't want to have to say that you don't actually love God. Because it certainly sounds a lot like the way I talk, and a lot like the way we talk, and a lot like our testimonies that, don't, that fail to talk about Jesus. So I'm tempted with my friends. I want to be, in some ways, a pluralist in those moments. And I imagine you probably do as well. We want to find that commonality and say, look, we, we all worship God. We all know God. We all love God. But friends, it would be disingenuous of us. It would be wrong of, we would be wronging our friends to suddenly communicate that they are worshiping and loving God when they have denied Jesus as the Christ, as the chosen one. So what we can say, and this is where we're going with this, the, the second half of John's chapter right here, what he's saying is, how do we know that we know God? What he's saying is we know that we know God if we know Christ. So if we know Jesus, then and we know Jesus as the Christ, not merely just that he lived, not merely just believing he was a great teacher, but knowing, believing, and loving Jesus as the Christ. If, in fact, we know Jesus as the Christ, then we know God. But let's go back to our same original question. How, then, do we know that we know Christ? All right? And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our, our time today. If, if knowing God means knowing Jesus, how do we know that we know Christ? Another way to say this is how do you know that you're a Christian? Now, I wonder how you might answer that question this morning. How do you know that you're a Christian? The, the majority of Christians, when asked that question, give an ambiguous answer. The majority of Christians, when asked that question, give an answer that's just absolutely ambiguous. Try it. You'll be baffled. So they'll, they'll, they typically talk in two, two, two different frames. They talk either about a feeling, an emotional feeling that they have, or they talk about a powerful experience that they had. So how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you know Christ? For example, they might say, well, I just feel God's presence. I just feel him, and I can't deny my feelings of God's presence in my life, so I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I know God. Or they might say, well, I just have so much love for God. Like, it's just bubbling over my soul. It's like on fire, and I have these emotional feelings, and I can't deny my feelings. I can't deny my emotions. I just love him so much. That's how I know that I know God. Or then, on the flip side, you might have someone say, no, for me, it was an experience. For me, a couple years ago at a Christian retreat, I had this powerful experience. And, and it, was, it was just so undeniably a crazy, just a God thing. And so I know that it's real because of this experience that I had. I know that it's real because, of, because I experienced this. Now, 
on the flip side of all that are many Christians who are discouraged and disillusioned because they believe and they're told that in order to know that you're a Christian, you have to either have feelings or a powerful experience. And I've sat with many people who have never had both. Neither feelings nor some crazy, wild experience. Sat with one, one guy who was nearly in tears who said, I just don't feel the way that I think I should. I don't feel so passionate and so in love with Christ like other people do. And doubting, doubting his salvation. Spoke with another disgruntled Christian who said, God just hasn't given me any crazy experiences. Like the ball of fire never dropped out of the clouds and Jesus hop out, you know? Like it's never happened for me. I haven't had some miraculous Damascus Road experience. Which Paul did, right? On the Damascus Road. But how did Paul know that he was a Christian? Was it because of the experience? How do you know that you're a Christian? Because of your feelings? Because you sense God? Because of some powerful experience that you've had? So John right here begins to answer this question, and I want you to see how he does it. Look at verse 3 with me. John says this, By this we know, that we have come to know him. Notice he doesn't say if we've had a big experience. He doesn't say if we have tremendous feelings. By this we know that we know Christ if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we know Christ if we keep his commandments. Now in, God, in John's gospel, so John wrote 1 John, he also wrote the gospel of John. I'm going to be flipping back and forth somewhat today. In John's gospel, he wrote the words of Jesus. And Jesus put it this way. Jesus said this in the gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what did Jesus believe? What is the evidence that you know God? If you abide in me, you have tremendous feelings. If you abide in me, you'll, a, a fireball will drop out of the sky. No. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you abide in me, John puts it here, you will obey his commandments because if Jesus walked this way and we're claiming to be transformed by his spirit, then we too ought to walk in what way? You know what the greatest threat is for American Christianity right now? The greatest threat, I believe, for, for Christianity in our country, in America, is, is, is not... Um, a lack of uh, relevant churches. It's not a lack of good music. It's not secularism in the schools. It's not gay marriage. It's not even the fact that we need more churches. You know what, you know what the greatest threat is, I, I believe, to Christianity in America? It's that we have 
completely forgotten and lost the doctrine of regeneration. We've lost the doctrine and the understanding of regeneration. And some of you might say, what is regeneration? And I would say, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We don't even know. What is regeneration? We've lost the understanding and the concept which has been held throughout biblical Christianity of regeneration, this belief that those who are in Christ actually become new creatures. They change. They stop sinning and they begin producing fruit in their life. They're no longer driven by the flesh, by the desires of the flesh, but now they are driven by the Spirit. They have a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding things. They have a new way of acting. They are changed. They are regenerate. They are completely made new. The idea of being reborn, of being born again, is the same concept of regeneration. Here's the problem, is that in America, we, the, the concept, the idea of being reborn or born again has been hijacked and has been perverted by two centuries of people just simply saying, you have to make a decision for Christ. You have to make a decision for Christ. It has nothing to do with evidence of a decision for Christ. It has nothing to do with evidence of fruit in your life. It just goes back to, well, did you pray that prayer? Did you pray the prayer? And if you prayed the prayer, did you really mean it at the time? And so then we, do, we understand then this concept of being born again, just sort of centered around, built around, whether or not we prayed a prayer at some point in, the, in our past. Whether or not we made a decision for Christ at some point in our past. Now, we could have been living like a hellion ever since, but as long as we were sincere when we prayed that prayer, we're good to go. I'm reborn. I'm born again. Because one day, there was a time that I said, Dear Jesus, I accept you into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. And now I can go back to the corner. I can go back to abusing my wife. I can go back to pornography. I can go back to whatever I want to go back to because I know I was sincere when I made that decision. And so our concept then of being born again or being regenerate has been hijacked by this, this concept of just simply making a decision in the past and absolutely, I mean, a care or a concern for evidence of that regeneration, evidence of the Spirit coming into your life is just simply non-existent. It doesn't matter. As long as you are sincere. Think about how Paul talks and writes to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is a group of people who are claiming to be Christians and they are carnal. They are worldly. They are sinful. They are doing things that the world even despises. So as, as Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, to these people who, who aren't really acting like Christians, does he say, dear people in Corinth, you're really not living like you're supposed to. I want you to think back to that time you prayed that prayer and ask yourself if you were sincere. He doesn't say that. 
Because see, for Paul, he's looking at people who are carnal. He's looking at people who are, many of them, not giving evidence of any kind of regeneration. And what Paul says to the people in, in, in Corinth is, those who are in Christ are made into a new what? A new creature. And then he says, test yourself. You need to, he says, examine yourself and see if there is any fruit of regeneration in your life. See if there's anything that looks like the Spirit of Jesus that's making itself manifest in your life. Test yourself, friends. Examine yourself. See if your salvation is sure. Now, remember John's motive here in this letter, this first John. His motive is, is not to cause the believers to doubt. His motive is not to cause truly regenerate believers in Jesus Christ to begin doubting their salvation. What he, what, let me, look at verse 28. Let's just drop to 28 really quick. I want to point something out. Verse 28, he says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink in shame at his coming. So John's motive here is not to just simply throw a bunch of stuff at us and say, hey, if you're not following Jesus' commands, then you're not a Christian. And and to cause any truly regenerate believer to doubt, his, his motive here is that we may be assured of our calling. That we may be assured of our election and our salvation. That we may see and produce evidence keeping in track with our testimony so that when Christ comes back, we can stand before Him in confidence and not hide in shame. That's His goal here. And so as we dive into this I would say my hope is the same. I don't want any truly regenerate believer in this room to walk out of here just simply doubting your salvation. But I want to take a moment to examine ourselves so that we may then produce the fruit of the Spirit of Christ and so that we may be able to stand on that day when Christ does return. So understanding what our salvation means then, it means that we are regenerate. It means that we are made new. We are reborn. The the birth of Christ then opens us up to the opportunity now to also be reborn. It demands then our obedience. And obedience isn't a word that I hear often in conversations with Christians. I mean, we, we love the concept of like wrestling with passages. We love the concept of of following Jesus, being a Jesus follower, loving the teachings of Jesus, learning from from the Bible, learning the lessons. But we often fail to push these lessons to obedience in our lives. We often fail to to push it to that next step where we say, not only do I like the concept of the Scriptures and the concept of following Jesus, but I am going to Obey the teachings of Christ found in the Scriptures. 
I'm going to allow others to begin speaking into my life. I'm going to allow others to come alongside me and rebuke me and correct me if I need it, to exhort me, to strengthen me, to encourage me in those times. To, to look at me and get in my face and say, brother, you've got to repent because if you don't, you are no longer showing any sign that you're a Christian. I don't see any fruit in your life. I mean, we love the concepts of lessons from the Bible, but so few of us, I think, fail. We, 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 just so whole, we, we fail to push it to obedience. To say, not only am I going to be saved by the grace of Christ, not only am, only am I going to submit myself to His teachings, but I am then going to go out of here and I'm going to obey the words of Christ, the Word of God found here in the scriptures. And so, as we go through then chapter 2 right here, I see three different warnings that John gives us. Three different warnings, and I, I actually just want to give them to you guys as warnings. <clears throat> the first one is this. You're not a Christian if you do not keep his commandments. Look at verse 4 again with me. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So if we say we know him, yeah, I know Christ. Yeah, I accepted Jesus into my heart some years ago. Yeah, I love, I love Jesus. I love his teachings. Yet we actually fail to keep his commandments. John, John says that we are lying. We're making a false profession of faith. We are not Christians if we don't keep his commandments. Now this isn't saying that we, we should go through the Bible and go through the Gospels and find all the commandments of Jesus and write them out and then stick them to our mirror in our bathroom that we look at every morning and sort of check off the commandments as we go through the day. What he's referring to is a life that is focused, bent on examining the scriptures, finding the truth of the scriptures, and then radically applying it to our own lives. This is referring to someone who first believes that the, this is indeed the word of God. That this is God's revealed word to us. And then as that word is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, then what we can understand is that every bit of this is Christ's word directly to us. So right off the bat, and without a whole lot of serious thought or study, I mean, when we think about it like that, in the, that context, we can think, well, there's, a, there's the Ten Commandments. There's, uh, in Matthew, there's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's all of the moral and the ethical code that's found in the New Testament. And so we are to be people then who are living lives, looking at this word, diving into this word, and when we find something in here that's, that's not congruent, that doesn't seem to taste right with the way that we're currently living our life, then we are obedient to the word, not to our own desires. This becomes our authority. If there's something in here that completely goes against culture all around us, we don't seek to redefine it so it matches up with culture 
as if culture is the final authority, but rather this becomes our final authority. And we move ourselves into this biblical worldview, and we are a people who strive day and night in public and also in private to follow and to be obedient to the Word of God. No matter how much we say that we love God, no matter how much you cry during a worship service, or no matter how many feelings you have, if you fail to obey the commands of Christ, the Bible has no encouragement for you. You are not a Christian if you fail to, not, to, to keep his command, commands. Now here John moves in the same way that he does in his gospel, following Jesus, summarizing all of the commandments and boiling them down into, into one or two in the gospel. Here John boils it down in the same way. Look at verse Verse 11, we'll start with verse 10. Whoever loves his brother, he says, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. So secondly, you're not a Christian if you hate your brother. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another. We talk about this a lot, and I think we'll talk about it until I die. We have to remember and we have to realize that the greatest evangelistic tool that God has given us, the church, is our love for one another. It's the way that we love our brothers and sisters. I mean, there's nothing that even matches the, the power that that has in the lost and dying world around us. Do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? I almost hate to give any application to that because it's so broad, isn't it? I mean, this concept of asking ourselves and going deeper, deeper and examining, do I really love I think almost every morning I wake up and I ask myself, do I really love people? Do I really love my brothers and sisters? It's so huge. So I, fail, I, I all often don't want to apply it because I don't want to minimize it, but I do want to give you some teeth, if you would, to chew on here. So some ways to think about this. A couple different ways that Christ loves us and then therefore we ought to be loving our brothers and sisters. A love that corrects. Do you love your brothers and sisters enough to gently rebuke disobedience in their lives and warn them that if they do not repent, they are failing to look like they're regenerate? Now notice I said, in the same way that Peter says it in 1 Peter, gently rebuke disobedience. We have to understand, those of you who are self-righteous among us, that this concept of rebuking a brother or sister in sin is not an opportunity to show the world on Facebook how awesome we actually are. 
to show the world how spiritual we actually are. But we are in the Scriptures called to still rebuke, but we're to do it gently, it says, with love. As you may gently bring a sheep back from the, wander, from, from the edge, we are to gently restore and rebuke the brother or sister in sin with love and with graciousness that they may not run from us, but that they may return. A love that corrects, a love that encourages. Do you love your brother or sister enough to sit for an hour a week in a house community to encourage, to exhort, to join a Bible study or a book reading with a group of people, to have someone over to your home as an opportunity to encourage them in your faith, to have someone over to your home who is not like you. Do you have people into your home of a different race? Do you have people into your home of a different economic background, a different educational level? Do you truly love the brothers and the sisters, all of them that are around you? And do you bring them into your life and do you sacrifice some of your own time to get into their life so that you may encourage them, so that you may teach them? A love also that bears burdens. A love that bears, bears burdens. Do you love your brothers and sisters enough to bear their burdens with them. It's been said that two of the most powerful and loving words that anyone can say is me too. Listening to someone and sharing with them that load. Yeah. Me too. I understand. I'm with you. Do you love your brothers and sisters enough to sacrifice your own felt happiness and to put yourself into their shoes and into their place and to, along with them, bear those trials, struggles, those burdens of life. A love that is patient. How patient was God with you? If I begin to even talk about right now how patient God has been with me in my life, I would break down in tears probably, so I'm not going to do that. God is a very, very patient God, isn't he? He has loved us with great patience. As in the days of Noah, he relented. He relented day after day, calling for their repentance, calling for them to turn. And so in the same way, friends, we are to love with a patient kind of love. Patient with those that are growing. Patient with those that are learning. Patient with those that are struggling with addiction and problems. We're to have a love that's patient. Also a love that disciples. Do you love your brother or sister enough to disciple them? So, I mean, to have, simply have the boldness to intentionally say, hey, can I disciple you? I know sometimes that feels arrogant, but it, it shouldn't be. Do you love your brother or sister enough to disciple them, to give an hour of your week and to follow through with some kind of maybe intentional discipleship plan and to, to teach them how to pray or how to read the Bible or how to find good books that can be an encouragement to them? Do you love your brothers and sisters enough to submit yourself to discipleship, 
to allow someone else into your life and you say, hey, can you teach me? Can you, can you pray with me? Can you give me accountability? Can you disciple me? Can you grow me in the ways and in, in the obedience of Jesus Christ? Also a love that evangelizes. Do you love your brothers and sisters? Or, I'm sorry, let me, do you love the lost? Those who are not yet your brothers and sisters, right? Do you love those outside of us enough to evangelize, to share the gospel with them, to warn them about hell? Or have you conveniently convinced yourself of a theology where there is no final judgment? And your evangelism is at best passive. Or do you care for the lost friends in your life? Do you care for their eternal destiny? Do you care for the warnings that the scriptures give them if they fail to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ? Do you love them? Do you, do you build relational capital with them? Do you, do you spend time with them, having them over for dinner, buying an opportunity to share Christ with them? Do you have a love that evangelizes, that invites strangers into our midst, that warmly welcomes them, that creates a culture, whether it's privately in your home or corporately, when we gather a culture which the unbelieving lost world can look at and say, Christ is legit. Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. One more, I forgot one. Do you have a love that prays? Do you have a love that prays? I'm so encouraged by those of you that I know are praying in this church. I know Brett and Crystal, every, every week for going on two years now, show up, lead a small team of people here to pray for you guys. Do you have a love that prays? One of the disciplines that my family is, and I incorporate into our life and something that I try to work to, toward incorporating into my own personal devotions is taking our membership directory and praying through it. Praying for your faces. Praying for those of you. Pray, and you, you know, as we pray together, as a family and as I pray privately for you, you know how we pray for probably three-quarters of our prayers, about three-quarter of the prayers that we pray are simply this. God, we pray that this person would be obedient to you today. We pray that this person would be obedient to you today. Because, friends, it's, it's through the obedience of following the commands of Christ that we know that we are assured of our salvation. And I want you to be confident of your salvation. Do you have a love that prays? We could probably go on with, an, with a list of ways to love and maybe I would challenge you to spend time this afternoon and make your own list what it means to love, how you would define that and evaluate yourself with each, with each one of those. Thirdly, the third warning that John gives us <clears throat> is this. You are not a Christian if you love satisfying your desires. You're not a Christian if you love satisfying your desires. Verse 15, do not love the world, he says, or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, what's John saying there? He's saying, well, don't love the world. So if you love the world, then you're not a Christian. Well, then what is the world? How does John define the world right here? What he's referring to as the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, does this mean that desires are wrong? Of course not. Desires, every, every desire that God has given you is good. The passions that God has given you is good. So, for instance, on occasion, when I drive out of the city and, and I see the sun setting over, what would that be, 695, I guess. I see the, the sun setting. I love sunsets, all right? And whenever I see a sunset, it's just like, my goodness, I couldn't paint it much better myself. I, 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 I love the beauty of creation and what we see out there. But if the, if the desire and chasing after that beauty were the end in and of itself, then it would be wrong. You see, God has given us a desire for beauty and a desire for whatever, you name it. Think of a desire. There's probably one desire that pops in three quarters of the guy's heads. Think of a desire in your life. God has given you that desire for His glory so that you may, through that desire, know the wonder, the majesty, the beauty, and the awe of who He is. How wonderful a Creator He is. So when we see the sunset, or we experience something beautiful, it ought to, in that moment, direct our attention to that which is truly beautiful. When we taste something that is superb, it ought to, in that moment, just direct our attention and our worship to that which is truly superb. All desires are given to us so that we may know the Creator and so that we may worship God through those desires and through those passions. But we are sinners, correct? We are fallen. We no longer reflect the image of God like we should. And so what happens is this. We take these desires and they become ends in and of themselves. Beauty, seeking after beauty and finding beauty and touching it and being around it is your goal in and of itself. To get that buzz from alcohol is the goal of drinking. To satisfy your hunger alone is the goal of eating. You see, what happens is, is when, we, when we have these desires, these God-given passions within us, and we begin then to, 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 uh, to, to seek after the satisfaction of those desires alone, we take these desires and they become our idols. And it is absolute rebellion. What was given to us as a gift that we may know the Creator is now the God in our life. And we are controlled by our desires. And we love satisfying our desires. We love satisfying, gratifying our cravings. So, you're not a Christian John is saying, essentially, if, if you love 
satisfying your desires, if, if the satisfaction of those is your ultimate goal. You're in darkness, he says. Now, without quickly jumping into a defensive posture, okay? This is kind of where it's tricky and tough for us. But, but as Christians, with, be, before we just quickly jump into a defensive posture, I wonder how you would examine yourself, how you would rate yourself, if you would, how you would say each one of these aspects is in your life. Are you following the commands of Jesus? Are you truly loving your brothers and sisters? Are you simply seeking after the satisfaction of the desires as goals in and of themselves? Are you controlled by your desires and your passions and your lusts? I wonder how you would would look at yourself, would rate yourself, how you would respond to each one of those. Now this is some really heavy stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff, as we read it, I mean, the most spiritual among us might start to question, maybe I'm not really regenerate. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. I mean, how do we look at the commands of Jesus Christ and say, yeah, well, I follow every one of them. I'm never controlled by my desires. I never seek the satisfaction of a desire in and of itself. I, I fully love my brothers and sisters. But nonetheless, this is what John gives us, isn't it? So we know that we know God. We know that we know Christ. We are truly regenerate and bearing this kind of fruit. Now, John knows that this is heavy. John knows that this is hard. And I want, I want to say this. John is a pastor. He calls himself an elder later. John is a pastor, and I believe right in the center of this chapter, we see something where his pastoral heart just like throbs and rolls out of his chest as he... As he lavishes the, the regenerate with comfort of grace. What he does in the middle, right in the middle of his, his very heavy material right here that God has inspired and given to us for us to look at today, right in the very center of it, John places this poem as if to say, I know this is heavy, and I, I know that some of you right now may be slipping into uh, a, a doctrine of justification by works, meaning you, are, you will be saved or you are saved if you follow all of these things. God will only accept you if you obey all of Jesus' commands. He'll only accept you if you perfectly love your brother and sisters. God will only accept you if you, you name it, controlled by your desires, etc., so as if, as if John already knows where we're going to go with that and the people that he's writing to, he knows where our hearts lean and he knows how heavy this is, he takes this poem and he places it right in the center of all of this heavy material. And, and I want you to see what he says in this poem. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children. Like th so remember, this is why I'm writing to you. I'm, I want you to examine yourself. I'm writing these heavy things for this purpose, because your sins are forgiven 
for his name's sake. Not might be forgiven if you obey, not might be forgiven if you no longer are controlled by your desires, but I'm writing these things to you because your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning. Not might know or will know, but you do know him because you have overcome the evil one, he says in verse 14. Because the evil one who once controlled you, he's overcome. And you can now walk away from these indwelling sins, these things that have held, held you so tightly. You've overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I'm writing again, he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. As we examine ourselves, what we see is our sins, isn't it? I guarantee you there's not one of us in this room who examining ourselves according to the standard right here can boldly say, I'm, I, I've got it together. I'm 100% in each one of these, these areas. In examining ourselves, what we see is our sins. And what John wants us to remember, and what I want you to remember, and what I remind myself of, is that there has only been one person who has fully obeyed God's commands. There has only been one person who has fully loved his brothers and his sisters. There's only been one person who was not controlled by his desires, yet he willingly walked to that cross. You see, Christ is the one who lived our life for us on our behalf. And what John is saying, what he's reminding us is as we examine ourselves, remember that your sins are forgiven. You must remember that you are not saved. God does not accept you based on the law and based on whether or not you follow the law. Because listen, law never propels anyone to better works. Give someone a law and all of a sudden it's heavy now and they, 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 can't even, they can't even go about doing it. The law is binding on us. The only thing that propels us to good works, the only thing that propels us to fruit is grace. Grace propels. And John wants us to see grace here. Remember, friends, your sins are already forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, from the first day until now, until the day you die, your sins, he's saying, Christians, regenerate Christians, your sins are forgiven. For whose namesake? For what purpose? It says for his namesake. Your sins are forgiven so that Christ's name may be made famous. Now, I want you to track with me here. When we think about assurance of our salvation, how we know that we know Christ, what we do is we examine ourselves to see if we are bearing fruit of repentance, if there is regeneration uh, that's evident in our lives. And our assurance comes from the fact that we are forgiven not because we asked for it. We're forgiven not because God wanted to do something for us and he's doing us a favor. 
we are forgiven for Christ's namesake. Meaning God wanted to forgive you. He wanted to forgive you. He didn't reluctantly forgive you. He wanted to forgive you. So that through you, a broken human being, his name might be made famous. Jesus put it this way in John 15, going back to John's gospel. Jesus simply said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Friends, the doctrine of election is the most reassuring doctrine we have. That Christ chose you. That Christ wanted to forgive you. That it wasn't, it wasn't as if he was doing you a favor. It's not even because you chose him or you asked for it. it he doesn't reluctantly pass out grace and forgiveness. He wanted to do it, and he freely gave it to you for his name's sake. So what is our response then as Christians? Our response is this, as we recognize and we, we remember that God chose us and to, so, so that through us he may do a work which will produce fruit so that the world may know as we consider that, we examine ourselves and we ask ourselves, are we truly bearing fruit? Not so we may doubt, but so we may have confidence. And so we may not run in shame, so we may not hide behind a bush at Christ's second coming, but so that we may be assured of our salvation, that we may be assured of his forgiveness, and we may boldly stand at the coming of Christ with confidence and know that he forgave you for his name's sake. Amen? Thank you for listening. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to dive into 1 John. We thank you for the challenge that we've received from it. Lord, uh, it is not my heart, I don't believe it was John's heart, and I know it's not your heart, that truly uh, regenerate people would would doubt your love for them and your forgiveness, your, their salvation. And so God, I pray right now that if there is any that is in this room that is doubting, who is truly regenerate, that you in this moment again remind them of the grace that we find in Christ through the gospel. That it isn't our doing, it's not our works, but it's simply the work of Christ on our behalf that saves us. And God, if there is any in this room who has been riding the fence and they have been seeking to call themselves a Christian while at the, other, at, at the same time keeping their other foot in the things of the flesh, I pray that even right now in this moment that they will fall off the fence into your grace. And I pray, God, that each one of us will remain obedient to Christ that we will seek your, your truth in the scriptures, that we will seek to crucify our flesh, align our lives with the Bible so that we may produce fruit and be sure of our salvation. And God, may we all in this room be able to stand on that day when Christ returns in confidence.
and not shrink in shame. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. week here at the Garden Church, we take a time of confession together. And you may remember in my sermon, I referenced Paul in writing to the church in Corinth. And where he told them to examine themselves and test themselves is when it came to the table of communion, because there were many in the church who were coming falsely. There were many in the church who were giving no signs of regeneration, no evidence of, of God's grace and fruit in their life, and they were still coming to the table. And, and he said, no. That's why some of you are dead. That's why some have died. And then what he says for the rest is examine yourself. Look inward. And we practice that still to, the, to this day each week here at the garden, an opportunity for us to examine ourselves, ask ourselves, am I really seeking to follow Christ? Am I really seeking to be, to be obedient to him? Now, some of you may have walked in this morning a... Uh, worldly, carnal Christian, a sinner. Um, and God has opened your eyes to your own darkness, to your own lack of fruit. And I want to invite you specifically to, to take a moment to look to God, to look to Christ, and, and allow Him to do the work within you that only he can do. To come to the table without hypocrisy. Uh, if there's anyone here who, who has animosity toward God, toward a brother or sister, before you come to the table, I encourage you and ask you to make that right. If it's not possible, commit to making it right with a brother or sister as soon as we're done with our service here. Jesus took the bread and he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. Every time you do this, do this as a remembrance of me. So this morning we come to the table to receive this special reminder and this gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to again come to this table to examine ourselves. And Lord, if there is anyone here who uh, maybe, maybe did not even consider themselves a Christian before this service began, and you have opened their eyes to their sin and to their need for Christ, I pray, 
right now that they look to you, that they look to Jesus. For those that may be struggling with, with indwelling ongoing sin, God, as they come to the table, I pray that they will come with a uh, decision to follow and be obedient to Christ. God, as we do come to this table, I pray that we will remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his blood which was poured out for us, sealing your covenant of love for us. And we thank you for that love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.